Hey everyone, welcome back to Built to Last. If you want to build a brand people truly care about, you need to start thinking beyond awareness and ad campaigns. You see, ads alone don't make people like you. In this episode, we're joined by Wissia's co-founder and CEO, Chris Savage. And Chris learned this lesson the hard way by spending $2 million on an ad campaign that barely moved the needle for his business. You see, brands today need to focus on building affinity, not just awareness. And to do this, companies like MailChimp, Shopify, HelpScout, and Wistia are investing in high-quality, narrative-driven content like video series and podcasts, just like this one you're listening to right now. But how exactly does this type of content build brand affinity? Why does brand affinity matter? And how can businesses of any size get started? Chris Savage is here to explore all of those questions and more. We join Chris as he's reflecting on what the word brand meant to Wistia when the company first launched 14 years ago. What did the Wistia brand look like? We didn't think about it much at first. It just was what it was. You know, we had a very simple website. The The goal of the brand back then was to try to be as clear as possible about what we were doing. Everything we put out into the world was just like dead center at first on like, this is a video hosting platform and this is a secure way to share video. That is like how it was presented. But as Wistia began to grow, Chris and the team soon realized that this positioning was actually holding the business back. We'd gotten to that place of, you know, getting 50 customers a month or something. I can't remember the exact number and felt stuck. So we kept trying all these new things and could not move that number of customers up. And so it was very obvious that a lot of the marketing we were trying, which was all really like on the nose describing what the product did. It was very product focused. It was not moving the needle. And then one particular moment made the Wistia team realize the power of content. And it was totally unplanned. Basically, it happened by accident. We made this team page because we felt bad that not everyone in the company was represented on the team. We wanted something that we could show people's parents. We shot three different photos of the team trying to get a good one. And we realized when we were putting the team page up that we could add a little Easter egg. So if you type dance on the page, it would randomly switch between the photos and it would play music. And we put it on Twitter and this thing took off. And it went on Hacker News and it took off. And so we got all this traffic, just people coming to see the team page. And then that unlocked a bunch of customers for us. And it was a very bizarre thing because it was like, this is so removed from our product. And yet people felt like more of a connection. They felt like a connection to the brand. Um, They felt a connection to the company because they were seeing behind the scenes. And it opened our eyes. Like, maybe we should be trying things that actually don't have anything to do with the product, that really have to do with what we believe in and what our values are. And as we started doing that, the number of customers started growing up. So it was very obvious. It was like, we are doing things unrelated to the product, but that show off our brand. This discovery led Wistia to go all in on creating content that aimed to help its audience and bring them closer to the people behind the business. So showing who was on the team and behind the scenes. And then over time, it turned into showing our expertise because we started making videos that were teaching people how to make videos. Um, You know, we made a video that looked really good and people were like, well, what's the lighting setup? What camera are you using? And we're like, well, it's not really the camera. It's not really the lighting. It's the concept. So we'll make a video with just an iPhone to prove that the camera doesn't matter. And then, of course, that content is teaching you how to make videos with an iPhone, teaching you how to light. It's teaching you how to concept. And that would take off. And then we'd get more customers. And so it was this like cycle that once it began, we started to realize it was a pretty simple formula. Like just basically 
teach people, educate them, entertain them, and they will have a connection to the brand and then they'll go discover what our products are. Wistia's new approach to marketing appeared to be working, but the return on investment from content can't always be proved on a spreadsheet or measured directly like an ad campaign. So how did Wistia approach measuring success in the early days? It started with all qualitative feedback. So it started by um, we decided we wanted to have a little event and see how many people could come. And so on a Monday, we're like, we're having an event at our office this Saturday. It's free. Come and learn about video marketing. Had no idea how many people were going to come. This is very, very early days. And like 30 people showed up. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like these people care this much. Like where did, and they came from all over. There's people who drove like two, three hours to come to this event. We're like, hmm, if they have this much of a connection to Wistia and it's all from this content, like this is probably working. A small cohort of people who love your brand sounds great, but at a certain point, you will need to widen the funnel and acquire more customers. To achieve this, many companies pursue ad campaigns to drive brand awareness, and Wistia was no different. We were looking for basically new levers of growth. And so one of the new levers to layer on top was advertising. And so we started thinking about doing some really big ad campaigns. But it was probably five years after we started making the content. That was the idea. Like, let's try to unlock additional growth. We had very, very high customer NPS. Uh, people love the product and you know good metrics all throughout the funnel and all this stuff. So when we looked at our business, we're like, oh, the, the only thing that it seems like we don't have is enough brand awareness. Like we're a small player. We never raised a lot of money. You know, we only ever raised angel money. So we were not in the VC press um, and we're a B2B tool. So it was just like, uh, it felt like awareness was the problem. And so we thought, okay, awareness is the problem. Advertising is supposed to help with awareness. We have a budget. Let's like go big enough that we can really see if it's working. Um, and we decided to do this like $2 million brand ad campaign that was across billboards and some TV and podcasts and digital. It was, it was everything. Wistia had dabbled in paid advertising before, but $2 million was a huge investment for the business and something Chris and the team hoped would enable Wistia to scale. And initially, it seemed to be working. When we first did it, we were really excited. You know, there's like tens of millions of people got Wistia brand impressions. And people who knew us were like, oh my gosh, like, I heard you at NPR. That's so crazy. I'm like, oh yeah, that's really great. Like, I saw your billboard. We're like, wow, I think this is working. But as time passed, the returns weren't quite stacking up as Chris had expected. We we're hoping we'd see a lift in traffic and that would turn into a lift in customers. And we thought we could be patient, which is why we ran it for a few months. We would wait and we would see this stuff start to come. And uh, yeah, very... Very, very little came. It sucked. I mean, you know, it seems like this like easy thing that everyone talks about. Like, of course, you could just buy your way to growth with advertising. That's it seems very attractive when you think about customer acquisition costs. Like, isn't there just a consistent customer acquisition cost that you can get? And if you did, like, you'd do fantastic. This was a critical point in Wistia's history. A big advertising campaign didn't work. So it's back to the drawing board. It forced us to go back to like, well, why why would this not work? We spent more money on this than like basically anything we'd ever done before. And yet all these other things that we'd been doing, which we were content we were making ourselves and the approach we were taking ourselves actually did work. Quickly, we were like, 
Hmm? Well, what if we had taken that $2 million and spent it on content? What if we had actually gone big on the stuff that had worked historically? What would have happened? So start to ask ourselves the question like, we've been trying to go wider and get more awareness, but what if we go deeper? Like, what if we actually go above and beyond for our customers and our audience members who are still engaging? Like, what if we try to use the audience we have to grow an existing audience? How would we do that? And what we settled in on was we would go bigger on the scale of the content. Like, we would we would try not just a blog post. We would try something much larger and more impactful um, and see how that would work. Now, at the same time, Chris and Wistia's co-founder, Brendan, made a huge decision, one that changed the path of the company. They had the chance to sell Wistia, but instead took on $17.3 million in debt to buy out investors and set off on a different path, a path that would steer them away from hypergrowth, that would allow them to focus on profitability and enable them to take more creative risks. Once we got to the place of being profitable, we were able to think much longer term because we didn't need it to work right then. And that sometimes is just like the magic the magic bullet because when you don't need it to work right then, you do the stuff that you know is good that's hard to prove. Like it's a classic thing. Like it's like when you look at a business, you're like, why aren't they doing that? Like it seems so obvious. I feel like this happens every day that we see restaurants, tech companies, whatever, where there's obvious things that they should do from the outside, but they don't do them. Often it's because the way they're running the business just doesn't allow them to. It doesn't allow them to consider those options. And so for us, being profitable, let us be way more long-term focused and much more creative. And one of those creative risks was to hire a video agency to help them tackle a unique project. The first thing we did is we had this opportunity to work with this production company, production agency in LA um, named Sandwich Video. And they're just, they're like the Don Draper of like startup launch videos, uh, if you want to think of them that way. So we were at Wistia Fest and Adam Lizagor, who is the head, you know, founder of Sandwich Video, amazing, amazing person. Um, he was a keynote speaker. That's Dan Mills, head of Wistia Studios, recalling how the collaboration with Sandwich Video began to take shape. And Chris brought up this memory of reaching out ages ago to do a video and we couldn't afford to do them or some story like that. But then um, Adam made some joke on stage that was like, well, if, if you have some idea or it was like, we could work together. And the next thing I remember was it was Chris said, hey, you and I should go out to lunch with Adam and we should really talk about this. He got off stage and we went out to lunch and that's when we really started talking about working together. And I remember leaving that lunch and Chris telling me, like, we got to come up with an idea that he's excited about. So the Wistia team began working on ideas to collaborate with Sandwich Video and quickly landed on one they loved. We gave them a budget of $111,000 and they made three ads for us. One with a $1,000 budget to produce it, one with a $10,000 budget and one with a $100,000 budget. And then we would document their creative process and the link between budgets and creativity. Because that was something that had been on our minds now, right? Like we'd been doing everything DIY. Now we went over the top of this ad campaign. It didn't work. We're like, well, how much does this really matter? And settled in on the idea of just like following these folks around and learning from them. And we knew that was going to be much larger than a blog post. Maybe it was going to be a guide. Maybe it was going to be something else. But as we dug into it, we realized, wow, this is a really meaty topic. And we're, we're shooting a lot of footage. This is going to be something really significant. And Chris was right. What happened next was definitely significant. We ended up making a feature-length documentary called 110-100. Yep, you heard that correctly. Wistia, 
a B2B software company, made a feature-length documentary. And so it's like an hour and 40 minutes long. And if you watch it, you get a sense for, you know, the freedom that comes with low budgets, um, where budgets get spent on bigger production, the difference in like brand value that comes from a higher budget thing versus a lower budget thing. So what was it like to get the go ahead to make a documentary? Dan shared his perspective. I mean, it's it's terrifying and exciting at the same time. I do remember the day that it was crossing over into like, we're about to do this now. And I sort of got nervous and Chris Levine got nervous. And we're like, hey, like the second we move forward, we are at the very least spending $111,000 and then a whole lot more time and money that we don't even know about. And I remember calling Chris Savage and just saying, are you sure? Like, because once we do this, there's really no turning back. Um, and he was like, yes. And I, I, it was like a conversation, like, I think that was like, you're sure though, like, you're sure you want to do this. So I, I do credit Savage to being the one that was like, when we got scared and wanted to turn back, he was the one that was like, no, 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 we're doing it. But the process was extremely valuable for Wistia, as Chris explained. We learned a lot, which was really exciting. And then we we had this now feature-length documentary that we could bring to our audience. So it's very different than advertising, trying to go get a new audience. We're saying, we're going to go back to the people who already know us and say, hey, we think you're going to like this this thing and see what happens, which is a little bit counterintuitive uh, because you'd think if you're spending all this money and all this time and all this effort, you would just try to get something that's going to bring you new customers. But we wanted to delight our existing customers. And we thought if we did that, they would share it with people that would find it really relevant. So how did 110-100 perform? It worked better than I could have hoped. Uh, it worked really amazingly. And what happened was we put out a trailer for the movie that a lot of people saw. Um, but then if you came to the to the website, you actually watched the documentary. If you made it about three minutes in, you ended up watching the entire the entire thing. So an hour and 40 minutes with a brand turns out is a long time. It's very hard to get people to spend that much time with your brand. And so even though the number of views was just in the tens of thousands, you know, compare that to millions of impressions with the ad campaign, we had tens of thousands of views here. What ended up happening was that we saw an instant lift in people going to Wistia.com. We saw an instant lift in people searching for um, Wistia and people searching for the documentary. And this turned directly into customers. So we saw a lift in new customers, and we saw actually a bunch of other things. We saw reduced churn for customers who watched the video, and we saw increased expansion for people who watched the the movie, which was so mind-boggling because, again, it's so far removed from the product. It's like nothing in our product is about budgets uh, of production, and yet this content ended up having an enormous impact. The success of 110-100 completely changed the way Chris thought about marketing. And the documentary confirmed his hunch that successful marketing isn't about generating awareness. It's about building affinity. It was so counterintuitive to think like, we're going to make something that tens of thousands of people are going to engage with instead of hundreds of thousands or millions of people. But the brand affinity that we create from this tens of thousands of people is going to actually lift the business. And it was like this really large eye-opener of like, it's not just about reach, it's about resonance. Like It's about how much time people spend with your brand. And relationships are built with time. And Wistia wasn't the only company waking up to these new principles of marketing. And so I started talking to other companies that had done similar things, because it turns out Envision had done 
um, a documentary about product design and MailChimp was doing documentaries and short films. And I started talking to more and more companies that were doing that. I started talking to companies that were doing podcasts and realizing that everyone I spoke to who had continued to invest in a podcast was saying, yeah, this works really well. And it just opened my eyes to this, this simple idea of all of these people were naturally taking money basically that would have been spent previously to put into being an ad on somebody's podcast. And they were making podcasts themselves. They're making documentaries themselves or making films themselves. And it's that idea of like focusing in on a small niche of folks who really care about a topic. And in the internet today, if you care about some niche topic, you expect to find content on it. And if it's something related to your business, and that means that you know, if you're B2B, usually that means that you can help people grow in their career by using your product, then there's often tons of opportunity to uh, make content there. And so many companies had figured this out. We realized that this trend was really happening, this like brand affinity marketing trend was occurring where more and more folks were focusing on brand affinity instead of just brand awareness. And at the heart of this shift was the understanding that marketing isn't about job titles or segments. It's actually about people. I think that people like to forget that humans work in businesses. And I think it's kind of that simple. Like we talk about people's job titles and we're like, I'm trying to market to the VP of marketing. Like I'm trying to market to the director of customer growth and acquisition, as opposed to like, I'm trying to market to Kelly. I'm trying to market to Chris. I'm trying to market to Kristen. And they're a person and they watch Netflix and they watch YouTube. And like, they have all these interests in this, all this richness and their job is part of their life, but like, and their career is part of their life, but they're just a human being. It's just that simple. And so if you had to pick between two options, like spend time with the Buffer podcast, learning about marketing and it's entertaining and educational and you feel like you're doing better at your job or go search for tons of articles that you don't and you don't have a relationship to where they're coming from. It's not curated. Like, which one are you going to pick? Like, I think a lot of people actually are going to pick the podcast. And I think the other thing with B2B is everyone's obsessed with numbers, like really big numbers, big awareness numbers. But what if you're a B2B business that gets 30 clients and you just that means you blew out your year? Um, that happens all the time because the price that businesses will pay for things is so different than what consumers pay. And it, the funny thing is, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who have podcasts. I've talked to a lot of people who have video shows, and the average number of people who engage with an episode is 500 people, and they're crushing it. They're just absolutely delighted because in B2B, that might represent an enormous percentage of their audience. And so it's just, it's really like, yeah, shocking to me that it's taken this long, but it makes sense because we just like to forget that there's actual human beings um, on the other side of you know those emails and uh, listening to all this content, watch this content. So for marketers who might be more comfortable with Google Analytics and spreadsheets than cameras and microphones, what are the keys to making great binge-worthy content? So I think the entertaining piece is important, but I think the way you're going to get there is going to be different, right? Like if you and I make a show tomorrow, we're not going to have a bunch of cars exploding. And in fact, if we do, our car explosions are going to be terrible. They're going to look like absolute crap compared to what you could get if you just go watch like the most recent like Mission Impossible, right? Like, so you're not going to try to compete in the same way. You're going to compete and make it entertaining by letting the personalities of the people who are explaining things come through, by being really specific and willing to have fun with the topics that you're covering. Because you just have to remember, it's like, pick any industry, anything at all. Like if you're marketing to lawyers, which can sound dry, 
you know, what are these lawyers doing? What are they spending their time? Like, I promise you there's an overlap of lawyers who love absurdist comedy who are trying to learn how to embrace tech today because of the pandemic, right? Like, and you make your Venn diagram of these things and suddenly there's no content that exists for those people. So if you can find a way to to make that exist, it, the lift doesn't have to be that high to end up with something that's entertaining. Like if it's something that's actually going to help them and it's and it's entertaining because they feel like there's people who have are basically being themselves that can work. So it's not that you have to compete with Netflix, it's you have to compete for that person the very specific interests that they have that align if we're talking to B2B that align with their job. It's like thinking about that and overlapping that with other elements to differentiate it is going to be where you end up making something that's like interesting and entertaining and different. So what unique audience is Wistia making content for? We're trying to make content that's for marketers and creatives, like marketers who are really interested in the creative and the process um, in how to differentiate and all that and creatives who are really interested in the marketing. You know, it's kind of like scientists who appreciate art and artists who appreciate science. And to appeal to those different niche audiences, Wistia has started to build out a roster of shows, each serving its own unique purpose. So like at Wistia today, we have a, a video series we launched last year called Brandwagon. Um, we're making podcasts that are more skewed towards like entrepreneurial folks um, that are that will be coming out soon that are like the mix of like creative problem solving, marketing and entrepreneurship. Um, we have other podcasts that we're making that are for different aspects of those groups. We have a live show called Out of Office Hours with Chris Levine, who has our head of video production, teaching people how to do remote video production. We think about like each show that we make is for a different subset of the audience. And but overall, there's like a mandate and brand values and an overall audience that makes sense and it's the same. So the way that we did it is we we did something that media companies do. I mean, a lot of this is just like media companies really good at building audiences, really, really good. Not that great at monetizing them. Um, B2B companies, pretty good at monetizing, not that great at building audiences. All we're doing is combining these two things. So we we looked at what media companies do. And usually they create a, what's called a mandate, which is like the set of values um, that you want your content to espouse to the world and the different audiences that fit within um, your mandate and stuff that would like look like it makes sense and stuff that doesn't make sense. So it's a pretty specific document that then we can take everything that we're creating and put it against that and say, well, does this check enough of the boxes? And when it comes to deciding which audience you're creating content for, can you get too niche? I think it's pretty hard to get too specific. Um, maybe if you were only trying to make content for one person, that might be too specific. But even then, you know, the most specific stuff is usually the stuff that shows off your expertise the most and um, you have the most clarity over who it's for. So I don't I don't know that you can. <laughs> Running your own media company from within a small business may seem like a daunting task, but Chris assures us there's a path to investing in this sort of binge worthy content for any budget. I think the the easiest way today is, you know, you're going to make stuff at home. Turns out everyone's making stuff at home. The the I have never seen the production playing field leveled like it is today. I think, you know, a huge reason why people have been afraid to try this in the past is like they're afraid of the brand risk of like, oh, my videos don't look good enough or my audio doesn't sound good enough, then like will it work? And I'm here to tell you that like authenticity is going to trump professionalism right now. 
and you are no different than anybody. I mean, I'm, you can't see this, but I'm sitting in my basement recording this, right? And like, I would never have considered in a million years that I would sit in my basement to record a podcast or a video, but I've done it quite a bit. And it turns out it's totally fine. And so I, I would say for people at home um, or people who are starting, think about a podcast as a way to start. And the, the key thing you want to think about is doing it consistently, trying to figure out how to do it if possible, without guests so that you're not constrained by other people's schedules and practice getting to a place where you can be the authentic version of yourself talking about the problems that you think your customers are going to be interested in. Because that is what we want. We, we want authenticity. We want to understand who we're dealing with, who we're doing business with, and we want to learn. And if you can get if you can get that stuff right, you can have a very very simple concept for something. It doesn't require much more than like honestly. If you have headphones, you can start with your computer, um, and over time you can make it better. But you will learn so quickly by making something and sending it to somebody and getting feedback. And that's actually the other thing I would say is really important here. Is all we're doing is saying like this approach: brand affinity marketing, making podcasts, making video shows, longer form content. You're, you're making content that you are marketing like a product and treating like a product. And so just like when you're doing product development, someone goes, the product manager, your researcher, the founder, you know, the, somebody goes and they ask customers like, what do you like about this and what don't you like? And you just have to do the same thing with your content. You have to ask people, do you like this podcast? Like what is missing? What else can we do? Like put it at the end of every episode. Give us your feedback. And it turns out there will there will usually be somebody who likes it and they will tell you what they like about it. And there'll be somebody who doesn't like it and they'll tell you what they don't like about it. And you just have to be fueled by that qualitative feedback. And that once you do that, you can figure out um, how to make something over time that really resonates and that is really engaging. And the hard part is actually just starting. Wist has been doing this for years now and has a fully scaled team to support it. But how could someone with a smaller team or even just a team of one get started? You want to pick something that is really specific and that you want to be an expert in. I'm not going to say that you have to be an expert because a, a lot of times you can become an expert by doing it. That's, you know, a, get another quote trick of the trade. Um, I, have a, I have a friend who runs a podcast called My Climate Journey. This is a, this is a guy who founded um, Runkeeper, which was a business in Boston that was like one of the earliest like run tracking things for your phone. And he sold his business and he was trying to figure out what to do um, with his time. And he got, you know, really passionate about climate change and trying to stop climate change. And so he started the podcast as a way to learn. So he started interviewing experts on, you know, every different facet of, of climate change. And I think he's maybe started a year ago, has done maybe 120 episodes and has built a real following of people who also care about climate change are teaching him about climate change. And now he's created this audience and he will have become an expert through the process of making the content. And I think that's something that we miss a lot is like, sometimes the best teacher is the person who just learned something for the first time because they have beginner's eyes on it. And that's why part of the magic of this whole thing of doing content in general is like continuing to make content and being willing to learn and share what you learn along the way. And that is often the most interesting stuff. And when we asked Dan for his advice, he said, just start. I mean, it's just not going to be amazing in the beginning, like fi figuring out your, your voice, 
um, and your brand as it pertains to your business on video, it does take time. It's like anything else. You got to start making stuff and throwing things at the wall because you don't know what's going to work. Just pick a project, maybe pick with something that's going to go out internally first so there feels like there's less pressure and do that and find the people at your business that are excited about video, that are excited about being on video and, and think it's fun and they're not scared by it because it, it is fun. Another thing to keep top of mind is that no matter how far you go with creating content, fun should always be a key part of your process. Even when I was working um, on 110100 or being on the set of 110100, you think of Adam Lizagor and his team is like, you know, the top of the top um, in this field. And they were having, it's the same thing. They're just goofing off like anyone else would be when they're making a video. Um, so yeah, you just have to like really channel that fun and just go. It's also important to stay true to what makes your brand unique. Another learning Dan picked up from shooting with Adam and the sandwich video team. We looked at their set as, oh, whoa, this is huge. This is expensive. This is scary. But they were used to it. And so when they came there, they were back to that thing. They were having a good time. They were they were inserting jokes. They were inserting humor. They would find something that made them laugh and they just put it in the video, which is exactly what you do when when you make a video with your friends from high school or when you make a video for the first time at your business. And I think what it taught me was you can keep raising the stakes on production. You can keep making it glossier and keep making it prettier. But if you start to lose that aspect of what makes you you as a creator, then you're failing. And so I think it taught me like, just keep having a good time and keep inserting what you think is either moving or touching or sad or interesting or funny into your videos and don't let the scale of the production. And even if that is a small scale and you're not used to that, whatever it is, don't let the production scare you from putting your voice out there. In marketing, it's easy to obsess over numbers and to focus on the direct response style campaigns that offer clearer, more easily measurable returns. But when it comes to calculating the business impact of binge-worthy content, where should you start? I mean, first thing I think is you can track it, but it's going to take time. So that's you have to know that in the future, you will be able to see the impact. Second thing is you want to look for short-term wins along the way. So ways of doing that is if you ha are making content that features other people in it, other businesses, you know, try to feature businesses that you think would be good, a good fit for your product. I've seen a lot of people make shows where they feature potential customers. And that is often, it's pretty flattering if someone reaches out to you and they say, I want you to be on my show. And so it's a way to start a conversation. And um, there's a company called Zayas that does this, that basically does like an ABM show where they feature people who could be potential customers for them. And you don't need that many of those customers to sign up to actually have it be a short-term impact. But then if they are successful with the show over the long term, they'll get both. So it's like you want to look for those places where you can get the short-term win and the long-term one. Um, if you have more scale, it's easier to see the impact earlier. You can take a look at folks who engage their content and then how they interact with the rest of your funnel. And what we tend to see is like, if you have content that is living out your brand values and people are spending time with it, it actually affects, because it's really a brand lift, it affects all aspects of the funnel. So usually what ends up happening, if the stuff connects is you get higher conversion rates to try a product, higher conversion rates of engagement with a product, higher purchase rates and lower churn, if people have a strong connection, which I think is like, if you take a step back from the whole thing, you know, if you could do an event, you had a, the most epic booth and people came to it and they like, 
got their photo taken professionally and they learned something really interesting and they got some some swag that they actually loved, we'd all believe that that would have a positive impact. And that's the numbers of people that are going to go through your booth much smaller usually than what you can get to to show up digitally. And so it's just you have to frame it in the right way and I, it can become an easier way to start because I think it's over time, if you build the audience, it will no doubt be successful. And if you need to convince your boss that binge-worthy videos and podcasts are worth pursuing, Dan has some advice. If you have a like a CEO or a leadership team or a head of your marketing that that is really um, creatively driven, um, then yeah, then then let them become a part of the process and work together to get something that you feel is really creative for your business and and they feel like is is checking off a strategic box. But a lot of people feel like they don't have that person that's leading their team, and that's okay too. Um, because I think the only barrier that's keeping someone who's quote unquote not focused on creative marketing efforts is they just haven't seen the success of it for their business, right? Like we all can't invest in every single piece of marketing. That would be expensive and wouldn't work. We find the things that work for us and we keep going. The sneaky thing about video is when you find a way to make that work, it is so powerful. These like evergreen videos that live on your site, that word of mouth, uh, when you start to build audience that way, it is a powerful tool. So how do you start when you haven't seen success is find something that is low stakes. Do an internal video around a holiday. Um, do a video that goes out to like just your network. Do something that accompanies some other piece of content, maybe like a blog um, that you're, or some other, something that's like adjacent to video, whether it, whether it be blog or webinar. Find a way to make that more towards um, a proper video. Find a customer pain point that you keep getting support tickets about and make a video that answers the question and see if there's a fun way that, that eases the tension between uh, eases the tension for the customer and maybe actually makes it a, a lighter lift for your support team. It's all about finding those opportunities as opposed to saying, hey, I want to do a massive ad campaign that's a video. Video is it. Let's go viral. And once you start to see some success and you start to hear that qualitative feedback, pay attention to it, even if it's just a little bit at first, because I, I guarantee the qualitative feedback you'll get from a video that's connecting with someone is different than anything else. It's, it has a lot of power. Brand Affinity is created as audiences choose to spend more time consuming content produced by your brand. And long-form content is the number one way to do this. Great relationships with friends develop through spending quality time together. And our relationships with brands is no different. The more high-quality, positive experiences you have with a brand, the closer you feel to it. And as you build up niche audiences of people who love your content, these people are more likely to recommend your business and share your content with the people they already know and trust. This creates an incredibly powerful organic growth loop for your brand. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. 